I'm a little bit concerned in this conference, and the reason I'm concerned is people are not talking to me. I'm lonely after I, I bring my presentation. My wife asked me the first day we were here, she said, has anyone said anything about your messages or your information? And I said, well, I have had two comments of feedback. One lady said she liked my pink tie. <laughs> and another gentleman, uh, the person I said, well, I only really understood 10% of what you say, but that was good. <laughs> so uh, I would encourage you to engage me in conversation because that's what I love about this conference, the fellowship and the exchange of ideas and information. And I've just received a blessing from every speaker so far. So I'm encouraged, I'm excited. Uh, I try not to use that term too often. Uh, one of my uh, colleagues or uh, one of the members of my Sunday school class back home said, you know, he said, I hate it when a preacher gets up and says, I'm so excited because he says, I know that's going to cost me money. <laughs> <laughs> we are in the Olivet Discourse, the Mount of Olives, the last word that Jesus gave before he left this earth. And we have been tracing the ideas that he was asked by these disciples, three questions. But before we deal with these questions, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, now we ask that you give us the mind of Christ, the, the humble mind that we can receive from others, that we can receive from your word, that we can hear what you have to say. We're here at the conference to encourage each other, to love each other, to lift each other up on the pathway we have set for ourselves to enter into the kingdom with abundance. So Lord, help us to understand what you are sharing with us and what you are picturing for us in the scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I feel like I need to warn you uh, early on in our ministry when we adopted two boys, our youngest son was kind of a rebel without a cause. And I said to him one Sunday morning, I said, Josh, let's go to church. He said, Dad, I don't want to go to church this morning. And I said, why not? He said, it's boring. It's boring? Well, Dad's in charge. What can I do to line it, line, uh, liven it up? He said, call it off. <laughs> so I, I thought what he had to say, and, and that in that time I wore a robe, a long black uh, Presbyterian robe. So I thought to myself, well, you know, he's probably right. I'd get up there and sound off and toot my horn, and uh, people kind of don't pay any attention. So I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually walk down from the pulpit. The pulpit was about this high, and we had a center aisle in the church. And so I got down and I was expounding my message and I was walking back towards the aisle, giving eye contact to everybody. And no one looked at me. They kept looking up at the pulpit where I left. <laughs> and I finally figured out that my church had mastered the art of sleeping with their eyes open. <laughs> All right, let's look at uh, the Olivet Discourse. We are at question number two. 
Now remember where we started out. We have only answered one question so far, and the disciples have asked, what is the sign of the end of the age? It seems safe to say that the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, which divides the tribulation period and the great tribulation period, is the sign of the end of the age. That's just conjecture. It's not spelled out specifically in the text. But now we will answer the other two questions, Lord willing. The second question that must be answered by the text is, what shall be the sign of your coming? The answer to this question is found in verses 30 through 34, and I want to suggest to you that it is an astronomical sign. And so we'll have to do a little astronomy and a little science to comment on this passage of scripture. Immediately, immediately, after the tribulation of those days, so that focuses our attention to the tribulation period that we have just finished discussing, referring to what has been described in verses 9 through 28. What's going to happen then? <clears throat> well, first of all, the sun will be darkened. Now, H.G. Wells wrote a book about what happened the day the sun died. It's a creepy, scary book. But basically, if the sun dies, if the sun is darkened, there's no more life on this earth. So we know that that is not what's going to happen. We must be careful here not to understand this as something really affecting the sun. The solar sun will not be darkened at its source. It will be darkened because of dust, etc., that has risen from the earth or a cloud of space dust. Now, I first saw this phenomena in Dallas, Texas, when the weather brought in West Texas dust and blotted out the sun. It was the middle of the day, it was a bright noon uh, hour, and you looked up and you could look right at the sun because the dust had completely blotted out the sun. It's, that's the darkening that we're talking about. Now, <clears throat> lest we misunderstand here, this is a space dust cloud, and though we don't normally notice it, our sun has a circuit of travel through the universe, just like the moon circles the earth, the earth circles the uh, sun, the uh, planets circle the sun. All these are what we pay careful attention to, but in fact, the sun travels through the universe as well. So all we have to do is encounter one of these space dust clouds and the sun would be blocked out or, or affected in some way. The moon will not give its light. If we can't see the sun, which is obscured by clouds, dust, or debris from the tribulation period, then we certainly will not be able to see the moon, which is a lesser light and a reflected light. The stars will fall from the sky. Again, we should not be too concerned that this is the language of appearance. The word in Greek for star literally means any bright object in the sky. We could think of a meteor or an asteroid shower, which of course could be very devastating, but the stars will not vary from their courses, nor will all the stars be involved. So, again, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This could be a reference to demonic powers. Stars and angels are often interlinked together in the scripture. 
In Job 38.7, it says, All the morning stars sang together at the foundation of the earth. And there's a parallel expression, All the sons of God shouted for joy. So the allusion in Matthew chapter 24 to the sun and moon and stars being affected might be talking about angelic influences for the stars. Let's look at Paul's vocabulary for the powers of darkness. He has a hierarchy of rulers, principalities, powers, authorities, powers, dominions, thrones, and world rulers. In other words, Satan has a kingdom and he has it organized in levels of authority. <clears throat> We're told in Matthew 13 that uh, a spirit that has been cast out of a, an individual, in this case being the house of Israel, is cast out of the house and he comes back and he finds it all dusted and clean but empty. There's no spirit that takes his place. He goes and finds seven more vicious evil spirits than himself and goes back and dwells in that house and the second condition of the the, the patient <clears throat> or the house is worse than the first condition. So we could be very well looking at <clears throat> what Revelation calls the war in heaven, excuse me, where the Michael and his angels are fighting against the devil or Satan and his angels. But in any case, there's going to be cosmic signs that the Lord is coming back. I noticed this verse when we're talking about sun, moon, and stars. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you will be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven all the peoples except Israel, except Israel. Be careful of the involvement in this. Now, here we go. Then, after the tribulation, the sign, the sign of the Son of Man. This is a, uh, the same idea that is used in referring to the star of Bethlehem. To deal with this sign, we have to introduce the idea of Planet X, which you may have never heard about. Now, Planet X has been hijacked by the Goofies. <laughs> the the uh, spiritualists and the people that do foreshadowing and mind reading and alien investigations, that has, they have hijacked this person. When I say the planet X or the planet Nibiru or the planet Sedna, I'm drawing upon NASA's information. I'm not drawing upon the Goofies' information. And I would commend that study to you. There's a wealth of information on uh, YouTube that you can download and look at. There's a wealth of information. Basically what we're saying, or what we're suggesting, is that there is a planet or a uh, sister or a binary star, there's a parallel solar system that occasionally invades our solar system. It's erratic. It cannot be predicted since the star is a dwarf star. It cannot be seen until it shows up. And what that does is tell us that uh, Emmanuel Balakowski was correct that there were 
disruptions or catastrophes that intervened in the history of our Earth, and we're coming more and more to that position scientifically. But the sign is a planet or an invasion of our solar system. Here is basically a schematic that tells us what happens. The planet or the extraterrestrial body that is not normally in our solar system invades our solar system around our sun. It's circulating the sun's dwarf or twin star. Every star that the astronomers have found is a binary star. In other words, there's an image, there's a, there's a sister star somewhere. And what we're saying is that the sun has a sister star out there somewhere which may have been dimmed already and there's planets circulating around that star and every so often it travels into our universe and does disruption. I think the first disruption occurred in, the, in Genesis chapter 1. Now, let me tell you a story. There were three men at church one day. One was an engineer, one was a surgeon, and one was a lawyer. And uh, they were debating as to which one was practicing the oldest profession. And the surgeon said, see here, he said in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord took a rib out of Adam and made Eve. That's obviously a surgical procedure. So what I conclude from that is that surgery was the oldest profession. And then the engineer chimed in. He said, but in the beginning, it says everything was chaos. And the Lord had to go in and inform the order and build the universe and the heavens and the earth from chaos. So that's obviously an engineering task and so engineering is the oldest profession. The lawyer just sat back and smiled. He said, who do you think created the chaos? <laughs> so I think the creation account, I'm of the opinion that the creation account is uh, a recreation account rather than an initial creation account. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1. However, what no one seems to tell you is that in the original language in the Hebrew, there is no definite article before the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, in, excuse me, there's no definite article before the word beginning. So it was in a beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we come then forward, fast forward to John chapter 1, verse 1. What we normally say is, in the beginning was the word. Again, there is no definite article in the text. So when the scripture says, in a beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that is the Hebrew equivalent of saying, in eternity past God created the heavens and the earth, and then we have a parenthesis, uh, especially indicated in the Septuagint, now the earth had become without life and without form. And so God moves in in the first three days of creation and he forms it, he restores order, he establishes order out of chaos, he makes boundaries and separation. In the last three days of the creation account, he fills the earth which is unfilled with life, he then breathes life into his creation. So that's what I think is going on. 
And I think the first chaos was based on a warfare that went on pre-creation between the angelic hosts and uh, God created everything perfect and Satan went in and messed it up. I again think this, uh, this uh, planet that we're talking about, our sun is a binary twin. Its twin has gone dark, but there are planets that still surround it. The planet we call X or Nibiru or Nemesis or Sedna is on an elliptical circuit that visits our solar system in an unpredictable and gyroscopic orbit. Now, having said that, its orbit varies in proximity to the Earth. Sometimes it's close and sometimes it's far. It is likely at the time of the flood of Noah and likely at the time of the, the star of Bethlehem that this uh, rogue planet had an influence, especially at the time of Noah. It will be coming back. It will cause much of the destruction during the tribulation period. Now just to interest us more in the topic, remember those talented hailstones in Revelation chapter 16, verse 21, during the great uh, tribulation. And there fell among men a great hail out of the sky, every stone about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. For the plague thereof was exceedingly great. A talent weighs 120 pounds. It is impossible to create this kind of hail in our present atmosphere. Now, grab a hold of that. So where is the hail coming from? I'm reminded of a story from my early seminary career. We went out and taught third and fourth graders in Sunday school. That's what they trained us how to be preachers to do. Give us the humble task. Give us the, the teaching elementary school uh, task. And we were reenacting the plagues of Pharaoh one day. And I said, and the next, the next plague was hail. And all these fourth graders looked up at me kind of like, what's he talking about? And I thought to myself, this is Texas. They're only four years old. They've never, ever seen hail before. So I said, do you all know what hail is? One young man put up, he said, yes, teacher, that's where you go when you've been bad. That's not the hailstones we're talking about. That's not the hailstones we're talking about. Where does the hail come from? Well, there's something they called the Oort cloud. It surrounds our universe with a cloud of frozen methane and frozen gases where there are mountains of ice ready to be drawn away. If the circular planet comes, its gravitational force goes through the Oort cloud, it pulls the ice along with it, and thus wherever the planet goes, the ice follows as well. God has already warned us about the Oort cloud. He didn't call it the Oort cloud, but he says already in the book of Job, one of the oldest books of the Bible, that he has prepared hail. Job 38, 22, and 23 says, Have you entered the treasury of snow, or have you seen the treasury of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? So this is the sign of the Son of Man. We're going to see a return of what we 
normally called the Star of Bethlehem. We're going to see a return of the, the planet that caused the flood or the tidal wave that swept Noah's Ark around the globe. We're going to see a massive destructions and the earth will reel and roll and rock on its axis. The sign of the Son of Man, this is one of Jesus' favorite names for himself. It comes from Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man was coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they, the angelic court officials, brought him near before him. The Son is approaching the Father to receive the inheritance of the kingdom. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an age-lasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. The word appear here means to become visible. It refers to either the first coming or the second coming of Christ. Consider 2 Timothy 1, chapter 4 verse 8. Finally, Paul says, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Now that's a goal for us to set for ourselves. Do we actually love God's appearing? Do we love the idea of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ? Normally, if you have sin in your life, you don't want to see the Lord. You don't want to see him show up. So this is an incentive for us to get ourselves right, get ourselves whole, get ourselves perfect, present ourselves blameless to the Lord. It's a means or a motivation for sanctifying our lives. What will happen in this passage when the sign of the Son of Man uh, occurs, then, after the sign appears in the sky, all the tribes of the land will mourn in repentance. I want you to look with me uh, in uh, verse 30. My translation says, then all the tribes of the earth, the earth. In scripture, the only people that have tribes are the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's not talking about the repentance of all the tribes of the earth. It's talking about all the tribes of Israel. So we translate the word gay with a, not G-A-Y, gay with a long Greek G and E. We translate that as land in this case, which is an acceptable translation. But to deny that the writer or the Lord is pulling out uh, from the Old Testament for this passage misses the mark. When they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power to put all his enemies under his feet in glory, the glory cloud imagery of the Old uh, Testament, then and only then will all the tribes of the land mourn in repentance. Compare Ezekiel 10.18 and 11.23 where the glory has departed the temple. Interestingly enough, the glory does not just go from the temple to heaven. It goes up from the Mount of Olives. This is the time that all Israel shall be saved. When you mourn in repentance for having crucified your Messiah and rejected him the first time, that's when all Israel will be saved. 
Notice the source of the verse. The source of Jesus' phraseology here is a combination of Zechariah 12, 12, dealing with the mourning of Israel and repentance, and Daniel 7, 13 and 14. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad, Rimmon, and the plain of Megiddo. That land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. And then in Daniel he says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented for, for before him. That's where the imagery of the text is coming from. Now look again in uh, chapter 24, verse 31 in this case. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet or the sound of a great trumpet. This trumpet is different than the ones we usually think about. All Jewish people will recognize this phrase as referring to the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. So. The first night we talked about, or first morning we talked about this passage of scripture, we said that there were pictures and illusions of the Feast of Tabernacles. Don't, don't stay up in the top of your house, get down from the top of your house where your tabernacle or your sukkah was and flee from uh, the land of Israel, the city of Jerusalem because there's coming trouble. Here we have the second feast day of Israel mentioned, the sound of the great trumpet, the ministry of angels going out to rescue God's people. So I make an assumption here that the angels are gathering elect Jews from the nations and are bringing them to Jerusalem when Christ as high priest makes atonement for the nation of Israel. Isaiah chapter 27 verse 13. And this promise is given to us in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 3. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are even at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord will gather you and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you should possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Again, we're talking about the mourning of the tribes. In that day, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Rimmon. We talked about that before. Now, what are we supposed to do according to this uh, passage of Scripture? From the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to 1,335 days, Daniel 12, 11, and 12. And we're using divine math here for you math majors. 1,260 days, 
talking about the last half of the seven-year tribulation period. 30 days of mourning over the Messiah, same days of mourning that they mourned with the death of Moses, and 45 days for the judgment of the nations. After that, inheritance received and kingdom established. Now it's time for a parable. I don't want to steal Jim's thunder. He wrote a marvelous book that is going to be published soon on parables. But let's learn this parable from the fig tree. This is a command to the disciples to whom he's talking. We've seen the fig tree back in Matthew 21, 19, and 21. Let's turn back a minute to Matthew 21, 19, and 21. Reading, starting to read at verse 18. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. So we're, the location is that we're on the Mount of Olives or on the Garden of Gethsemane area, and Jesus is in the process of returning to the city. And seeing a fig tree there by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. Let's look at it here. Now, here's my comment on that passage of Scripture that I want you, especially those of you who know Greek, to check out. The word translated forever in that passage, no fruit shall grow on you forever, is an incorrect translation because it's ice tone ionion. It's onto the age. It's onto the age. In other words, while the age of grace, while God is working out among the nations, recovering his people that were scattered and drawing Gentiles into his relationship, during that time, the fig tree is withered. But when we come back to Matthew chapter 24 and we look at the parable, the fig tree is budding again. What is the fig tree? It could be the nation of Israel. However, the fig tree is planted inside the vineyard. So I suspect very strongly that the fig tree is a symbol for the temple at Jerusalem because he's going to the temple. He's going back into the city. He's going to the temple and he's looking for fruit. But all he has is fig leaves. All the tree has is fig leaves. It has not borne the fruit that he wants to see on the fig tree. And this takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve covered themselves with fig leaves. They lost their glory garments because of their disobedience. They were no longer perfect images of God as they were designed to be, but they covered themselves with fig trees. That's an artificial covering. That's a substitution for the cloth of righteousness that God had given them. And he had to kill an animal and cover them with the garments from the animal and therefore they had the righteousness back again. But the fig tree can be traced down through the history of Israel from the Garden of Eden and that's why I say the Garden of Eden is on the Mount of Olives or the Mount of uh, the Temple Mountain. The fig tree can be traced down and those fig trees still exist today in that same area according to people that I know who have visited the place. So when the fig tree puts forth leaves, we know that summer fruit will come soon. In the same way, when the disciples see the Son of Man 
the mourning and repentance of the tribes and the destruction of the city, then they know that he, the Messiah, is near at the very door. Verse 34, another translation problem. Verse 34 of chapter 24. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things are fulfilled. That's what my translation says. However, assuredly, verily, rarely, an oath formally, I say to you, this generation may by no means pass away till all things are fulfilled. The normal incorrect translation conveys certainty, whereas Jesus was speaking with a certain contingency. Check the underlying Greek language to uh, validate what I just said. The present heavens and earth will pass away. The word of Jesus will absolutely never pass away. Compare this with Matthew 5, 18 and 19. And last but not least, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away by no means. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 22 and 23 is a very interesting verse to me. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring or seed and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me. You know why that's interesting to me? It's because during the kingdom age, including the new heavens and the new earth, we're still celebrating the feast days of Israel. Think about that. Now we're ready to start the next question. We're ready to start this section with the disciples asking three questions. We now come to the first question that asks, when will these things be? It seems to be the only question that people who want to see into the future want to discover. But we'll take that up tomorrow morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge it presents. Help us to study more and understand more, but help us to love more because we know knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.